1: want to apologize to troy's fans and my fans and my boyfriend gustavo i i am so sorry
0: (laughs) because it's my fault
1: i was the one who agreed to review this movie for this podcast (laughs) And I kept saying that I didn't think it was scary. And I chose to get really stoned. All alone with my vijla in the basement. And I am so scared. (laughs) I am so scared, Troy. Oh,
0: Roger. I told you it's scary. I
1: warned you. Listen, there are moments of this film that we're going to discuss that I stand by <laughs> as, as not being my favorite film of all time. But then there are other moments that I got to say in the right scenario, with the right lighting, <laughs> or, or lack thereof, in the right basement, this can make you feel like you are about <laughs> are about to be watched and stalked and killed by some malevolent presence in the darkness. Like it does have that effect of like kind of pulling you right into it um, because it feels so just gritty and cheap. And like, it was really just a bunch of people throwing this together. It feels that way and it should because of the context and because of how they approached it.
0: Yes. We, you know, I'm so glad that we are discussing this film. Finally. I know, you know, we have, we've mentioned this film in the past and I know that you say that you aren't the biggest fan of the film, where on the flip side, I maintain still, even after watching it for this particular episode, that it is one of my top five favorite horror films of all time. There is something, something so unsettling about this film, so authentic about this film. Uh, and I was really curious going into this viewing as to whether it was going to have the same impact on me as it did when I first saw it or the first couple of viewings that I saw it, because it's been a while. It's been probably a good 10 years since I watched this film. And I got to tell you, you know, I watched it last night. I shut the lights off and I still got chills down my spine during specific scenes. I still was on the edge of my seat during that those last 15, 10 minutes of the film even though I know it was going to happen. And I know also that this film is probably, Roger, and I think you would agree, one of the more divisive horror films in horror history. You have the whole camp that love this film, that adore this film, that think that this film achieved 100% what it set out to do. And then you have the other section of horror fans. And I would say maybe a lot of younger viewers fall into this camp where they find it stupid annoying, boring, nothing happens, yada, yada, yada. Um, And anytime you see a post about the Blair Witch Project in one of those horror Facebook groups, it's one extreme or the other. Someone loves it or they fucking hate it. I love this film. This film, I will tell you one thing. The best experience, theater experience of my entire life was watching this film on opening night in Cedar Rapids, Iowa with a packed theater. It was amazing and we will get to that because i think a lot of it has to do with the marketing of the film and if you weren't you know younger viewers who weren't or who weren't born in 99 yet or weren't old enough to to go to the theater or remember this film i i don't think they realized how much of a cultural phenomena this film was this film went viral before that was even a thing and it had one hundred percent to do with the genius, and I will say this: genius marketing strategies that were implemented to promote this film.
1: Oh yeah! Oh, I mean, it really is. I think one of the earliest examples of like viral marketing, if you think of it, of how they were using it to reach out to a younger fan base, and and this is the time when the internet was really just starting to see um, its its breakthrough into culture, you know, and, and using all of that to its uh, its strengths, like I, you couldn't avoid the visuals of this, no matter where you went, the commercials, the fact that they leaned into the, the idea that this could, in fact, be a real thing, like people bought into that Um, And I think one of the big aspects of the the fan base it's developed is I think there are the people who saw it live and experienced it, you know, for the first time in the theaters and had that experience. And then there's a lot of us who went into it knowing the, you know, obviously this is not a real movie, but also kind of knowing, having a basic idea of what happens. I did not see it in theaters. I saw it with friends a few years after it came out. Um, and I think part of the reason I lean into the other camp and i I don't hate the movie, let's be clear, I really don't hate it um but there are a, a few things that I feel and i'll I'll address this now because I want this to come up as a topic later for us is I feel that there that in the sense of payoff and build up enclosure um I do feel like in my opinion it feels very lacking um and and even though there are moments I really find horrifying and i do there are moments in this movie that are genuinely terrifying. And, and if you're watching it, yeah, in the right scenario, you will feel those chills running down your back. Um, but in the sense of what it builds up to, um, how you know how open-ended do you like your finales, I guess is what it comes down to. How vague can you take it? Uh, because it really leaves this kind of just hanging on an, uh, an idea that uh, something happened to these kids and you don't know what. Um, and and that can make for, I think, for some viewers for it to feel like it it just doesn't feel complete, which is a complaint that I have heard from a lot of people.
0: But I kind of like that, actually, because it, for me, that plays into the authenticness of the film, um, that it is so understated that there might not be these huge, elaborate sequences uh, of action. And I think, you know, the Blair, Blair Witch that came out a couple years ago. Uh, directed by the the guys that did Your Next, which I fucking love. I think that made the mistake of doing exactly what you're saying this one didn't do. And I think if you watch the two films, the first one is definitely superior in terms of just fright factor because it is not so in your face. You don't see what's out there uh and when you compare like i said to blair which they came out what 2017 16 i don't even know because i watched and i was totally underwhelmed by it uh, you get you get what they it's like those filmmakers took all the complaints that people had about this original film oh you don't see the witch oh you don't see the. and they're like oh well let's give it to them let's just pound it in their face and and, and they do and you see everything and it, it's not effective at all um so i think that if you compare this film, The Blair Witch Project, to a lot of the found footage films that came after it, that followed the formula, that did do kind of what you're saying and, and and tried to have a much larger payoff, much larger sequences, things like that, they to me they're just not as effective because they don't come off as being real. And I think that's where this film definitely towers over its predecessors in the fact that it does it is the one to me that feels the most real and a lot of it is because of the just the low keyness of it there isn't you're right there isn't a lot of like the action sequences are there, but they're not like loud and in your face and you know they're very subtle um and, and i I like that I like that I feel like it comes off as being more realistic,
1: yeah, I can completely see that and understand that. And I I know that a lot of uh, fans of the film favor that aspect. You know, they really uh, enjoy that about it. Um, And I get why, because it definitely plays into like the whole like lore of it. You know, the idea of these three kids having gone missing and this whole vague ending not giving you exactly, uh, exactly an idea of what completely happened to them, which makes it all the more scary, I guess, in the long run. Like I do get that. Um, And I do feel like it has to be celebrated that this film set like the blueprint for all of the found footage style movies to come after, the, after it, much like when we reviewed Night of the Living Dead with our past episode, but prior to this, and uh, we talked about how Romero set the groundwork for, you know, the zombie and what's to be expected from the flesh eating zombie. This very much did that for the found footage genre. I mean, there there are so many movies that have this specific title to thank and to respect for making it possible to make films like this that are, uh, I guess, palatable uh, for the mainstream public? Because before this, you really did not see anything like this prior.
0: Not that was not that was as successful or as mainstream. There were found footage films before the Blair Witch Project, probably most notably the ones that get brought up all the time are Cannibal Holocaust and the one that came out the year prior to the Blair Witch Project called The Last Broadcast. Neither one of them, Now, Cannibal Holocaust, of course, caused a lot of controversy when it came out, but I would never say it was a mainstream film. I think why Blair Witch Project gets the credit for really being the harbinger of the found footage genre is because of its success. I mean, we have to just lay it out there. This is one of the most successful horror films of all time. I mean, it was made on a tiny budget and went on to gross $250 million dollars. Um and again, if you were not around when this film came out and you weren't part of like seeing the cultural phenomena that became the Blair Witch Project, then yes, it probably was not as impactful to you. Like I can I can really See, like, some you know, a fresh horror fan who's never seen the film putting it on today and watching it in their living room and being completely underwhelmed. I would totally understand that. A lot of what made this film so impactful for the audiences that saw it when it first came out was the mystery around it. Is this real? Are we really watching real footage? Because that is how the film was marketed. There was a website that was put up, um, documenting the. Uh, the the case of these three missing kids that was put up months before the film even debuted at Sundance Film Festival to make it look realistic. There was a documentary about the Blair Witch and these three kids going missing that the filmmakers did and put out before the film was even released. They actually went to the town of Burkittsville, Maryland in the months leading up to the film and put missing person signs with these three all around the town. So it was really presented as being, this is real. What you were seeing is real. From the very bare bones opening c- credits, which there are really no opening credits at all, to the ending, there's nothing like fanciful about the film. It really does look like, hey, you're watching real footage. And I guess that's what found footage is. But I think this is, again, another reason why this film is so successful at what it does. Because some of these uh, found footage films that came out after Blur, which really kind of messed with the idea that we are really watching, you know, true raw found footage. They have edits, they added music, their score. So it just kind of takes away from the true feeling where this feels gritty. It feels real. And I feel like we just need to dive right into it because we're talking a lot of preface. And I think that we need to dive in and talk about this because I'm excited. Of course, listeners, we are talking about the highly influential, highly successful Love it or hate it, you can't deny that. 1999's nine's the Blair Witch Project.
1: Yes, we are. We're 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 chatting about what would be considered a modern day classic, I suppose. I guess we could still say modern day. It's within our lifetime, uh, but definitely one of the most groundbreaking classics of our lifetimes and of the modern horror era. How exciting! We're we're covering some classics lately.
0: Covering some classics. And I do remember like, I remember the buzz about this film before it even hit theaters. I remember there was like a little blurb in like, I think like People Magazine or Time, maybe even Time Magazine where they were like, oh, this film debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and it scared the shit out of audiences. And it's real footage of, of you know, of three kids that went missing. Again, the marketing to this film was a huge yeah. play. And I saw, again, I saw this film on opening night and I will tell you when I saw this film, I had no idea if it was real or not. It wasn't until the film started to get really successful that the filmmakers were like, Oh yeah, we can't really keep this guys up anymore. Uh, and they just like, were like, fuck it. Let's just, yeah. Because then, then like a couple, like a month or two after the film was in theaters and it was making shit tons of money, the cast appeared on like the tonight show. And then they presented at the MTV movie awards and everyone was like, Oh fuck, it isn't real. And for some people that really made the film, a disappointment
1: yeah yeah i I remember that i remember how they had kind of a moment where they're all kind of basking in the success of it and how could you not like imagine being that filmmaking team and realizing that you've made 250 million on such a tiny fucking budget like what are the chances so i don't think anyone was prepared for the fame or success that would have come um from this you know but after a while, you've got to kind of, you know, I guess let that joke go because it just wouldn't, I don't think to maintain that, to try to argue that any further, it just wouldn't have made sense. So I get why they just kind of embraced it with open arms and like, wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you want to go to the award shows? <laughs>
0: exactly. Once you realize that your pre-marketing was highly successful and, tr- and actually tricked people into thinking what you were presenting was real. Yeah. You know, why not? Why not finally embrace it? You've already already done your duty, you've done your job, you've done what you set out to do. And that was to get people to see your film and to get people to react to it. And boy, did people react to this film quite a bit. Um, You know, the film again, very bare bones film. That's what I was, you know, when I watched the film this time around, I was just like struck by how just simplistic everything is from just how everything's presented, the cinematography, and it just adds to that gritty, realistic feel. But the very first thing we get on screen now is has become kind of a staple of a good found footage film, and it is the little text to black, you know, white text on a black screen, basically telling us what we are about to watch is real, right? We've we've really only um, reviewed one other found footage sort of film, and it was Lake Mungo. And it did the same thing, right? You get just the ominous white text. This film opens up with a, with ominous white text on a black screen that says, in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. Simple, simple, very simple setup. Very simple setup. And what happens is we launch into presumably what is the found footage and we open with our main protagonist Heather
1: let's talk about Heather for a second <laughs> I know well,
0: I know <laughs> I know Roger we have I'm sure you have a lot to say God, about damn. Heather I have a lot <laughs> yes. to say about Heather I you know it's Heather Donahue another really interesting thing we have to point out with this film is the actors use their real names all of the act, you know, the three characters in this film are they—they they use their real names, first and last, which kind of again made it so that it could be presented as being a little bit more realistic, true, right? When they when they were posting up these uh, missing person flyers, but yeah, Heather is introducing her home to the viewers and. Um, saying that she's excited to, to go explore the legend of the blur, Witch, and she even has some books that she's taking, including one of them that has a article in it about a horrific event that happened in the woods of Burkittsville at coffin rock.
1: Yeah. The, the whole setup here, I got to say, regardless of my thoughts of Heather, cause we'll delve into those in a moment. I really appreciate that they jump right fucking in to what's going on, what to expect, and we're up and moving. Like, you get a little bit of introduction with her character. Real quick, you're introduced to the guys as well. Um, Mike and Mr. Punctuality himself, Josh. Um, But, like, it is, like, you're introduced to them as they all kind of interact with each other and get connected to do this project that they're going to work on together. And they, they, uh, they handle it really well. Like, it is paced so quickly. It's amazing to me that As fast as the the first chunk of this movie moves, the second half really kind of takes its time, like day after day, night after night, just going by through all this Woods footage. The first chunk of this movie moves very quickly.
0: I appreciate that there's no like long drawn out character development, character interactions. It gets right to the point. And yeah, you're introduced to our three characters. Heather Heather is the one that's kind of... In charge, correct. It's her film. She she brought on Josh, and then Josh brought Mike on, which is you know as a second cameraman. Heather and Mike don't have never met each other. They go to pick Mike up, uh, and there's just a lot of of banter back and forth. They do make the comment, and I found it very clever that Heather makes the comment about as they're driving. She's like, "Oh yeah, and we have enough uh, battery power to fuel a small country for a month." Bingo, I thought that was very smart because what is one criticism found footage films get all the time, especially ones that take place over a extended period of time? It's like,
1: yeah, how do they keep recording? How do they
0: keep recording? So they, throwing that little just quick, quick little dia, uh, dialogue in there to, oh, yeah, so she already mentioned that they have a lot of battery power. They do that a lot in this film, and uh, I, I think it's very clever.
1: Nothing about this film ever, I would say, feels inorganic. Like, the whole thing, shockingly enough, feels very natural beginning to end. Um, And I do think, you know, impartially in favor, uh, even though it's a complaint I brought up earlier, the fact that they keep some of these aspects more vague or open-ended, it only leans more into um, just how natural this film can really be, how realistic, how believable. Uh, There's a lot of subtlety to this film, uh, but luckily the core cast that it focuses around are all very strong in their roles. Like, you get to know these three pretty quickly. They are the focus for a majority of the film. They are all you are seeing and hearing, and they really carry this movie. They anchor it, and it's quite impressive what they do with, I'm assuming, a very limited actual script. I'm assuming this had to be mostly improv because it does feel so natural.
0: It was. It was. It was almost 95% percent improved. Um, the actors were basically just given cues every day as, as to where they were supposed to go, where they were supposed to end up. Um, a lot of the stuff that they encounter, they had no idea they were going to encounter it. So the reactions are realistic. But yes, this film was very heavily improved. And again, I'm glad you mentioned it. Kudos to this cast for being able to carry this film and improv it so fucking naturally. Yes, you might find Heather unbearable. You might not like the characters, but I think that the acting is stellar, particularly when you think about they are improving this. They're coming off the cuff of of, with some of this reactionary stuff. And I think it's really good. And you know I even like I think Heather Donahue's performance in this is, is very, very good. And we've mentioned this before with other other films and other performances and horror films. And it's just like, it's the nature of the horror film. But I, I know that she either, I know she got nominated for a Razzie award or I think she won the Razzie award for worst actress for this. And I mean, I'm like, come on, come on.
1: Oh yeah. She's so good in this.
0: She carries the film and it's really a shame that she never went on to really do much more. And I know she blames this film for that. Unfortunately, I mean, I think the whole cast, the three of them do a great job. They're, they're, they're believable. You believe their interactions, even when they are going at each other's throat, it seems very, very, like I said, natural, realistic.
1: She makes me think of like, um, of like a Leah Michelle and Glee kind of like, she makes me think of that kind of just like dominant, like I'm a woman in a man's world, but I'm going to call the shots. And it does make her, honestly, it makes her somewhat grating at certain points, but I think she needs to be. And I think you're right. I think, like, you know, kudos to her for playing an annoying character so fucking well. She really does annoy the fuck out of you. But, like, she has to hit those beats in order for the story to progress the way it does. Because it's because she's so so pig-headed and so stubborn that they end up getting themselves lost, you know, or so it seems we don't know exactly w- with everything with the map and so forth. But it does seem like she is a major playing factor for some of the things that go wrong here um, because she's stubborn. So she has to have those traits. I think she plays them very well. I think her performance is fantastic and it's extremely natural.
0: I, and isn't it refreshing to see a female like in charge, particularly in a filmmaking world, because generally filmmaking has been very male dominated. So kind of the role reversal of, of Heather being the one that this is her project. She is telling these guys exactly how it's going to go because it's her ass on the line. I think it's kind of refreshing. I agree. You know, it's not something you saw a lot—a of a female taking charge, particularly, like I said, in the filmmaking world. Uh, you do—you do get a little bit of banner with the with the two of the or with the three of them, and again, it's nothing like it doesn't overstay. It's welcome. There's this cute little moment where they go to the store and are picking out treats. Um, there's this little moment where they fill out their first slate and they each kiss it. Uh, and Mike licks it though, so and she tells him you're not supposed to eat it. It's just little quick quick moments of character interaction that make you think okay yeah i I buy these three as they're really excited to get on this journey and then they film the segment of the or the opening segment of what is going to be her documentary where she is in the burkittsville cemetery describing it it's yeah it's it's very creepy it's (laughs) you know and she's she's narrating it very seriously which is which is, not, which is kind of funny because it's like the total antithesis of the, her character throughout the rest of the film. Anytime she's in mode where she's like narrating or talking about the film on camera, she is very serious, very studious. But then, you know, most of the film, she's not like that at all. But she does say, you know, it's, Burkitt's, it's, Bur- it's Burkittsville, Maryland. This is the cemetery. As you notice, in the, uh, an unusual amount of children are buried here, particularly from the 1940s. You no, know, nobody then questioned it, but legend tells a different story.
1: I gotta say this monologue, like this this documentary in general that they're making, it really is not that impressive. I just gotta say it. Like it is it is like bottom of the barrel <laughs> documentary filmmaking.
0: I agree. I think that's, if I was to be 100% honest with you, Roger, I think that is the weakest element of the film. It's like, what is this documentary supposed to yeah, be? Yeah. What is it
1: like? What purpose is it serving?
0: Yeah. They don't really when you in the grand scheme of things they don't really film a lot for it i mean they film some interviews with the town folks which we'll get to and then they film like oh coffin rock this is where it happened and then they film some woods what the fuck kind of documentary is this going to be it's going to be like 5 minutes long and what what was what's the point of it and there, there there's moments where she's t- talking about it like it's going to be like an oscar winning film she even tells them at some point you guys just better be happy that you're going to be in such a great film i'm like what the fuck none of them have even been on camera
1: but like, Troy, we also know that we know this fucking filmmaker. We've met them before time and time again. <laughs> like, I mean, I know a lot of filmmakers who operate with a similar mentality about the shit that they're pushing out. <laughs> like, So it's not that far from reality.
0: <laughs> but I keep thinking to myself, like, yeah, I get it. it. It was the ploy to get them into the woods, right? And to get them to keep filming. But it really is like there are moments where you're wondering, OK, what is what is the point of this documentary? i it, is it a? I, I don't know. But I do like then that they they transitioned into interviewing some of the town folk. And there's a variety of characters who reveal their knowledge about the Blair Witch. They randomly ask, like this old man coming out of the diner, if he's heard of the Blair Witch. And, you know, he's like, yeah, there's something very ominous that's, that's been going on in these woods for a long time. And he tells a story of a gentleman named Rustin, pa, Rustin Parr, who. Came down from the mountain one time, one day in the what, the forties and said he's finally finished. And so the police went up to his cabin and found the bodies of seven children that this gentleman had murdered in the middle of the woods.
1: Okay, there is a lot going on here with all of the these stories that come up. There are like seven different alternate stories. There's one about a woman covered in fur, as told by the town crazy woman. Oh,
0: you're you're definitely oh, playing her oh, in the remake with your shawl. I can't wait.
1: I can't wait. It's been my it's been my dream to play that fucking role. Um, but no, I mean you get you get a lot of backstory thrown at you real quick, and it's kind of hard to follow. I I kind of appreciate it though because it seems like it's. I mean, it feels like an urban legend. Like urban legends, they grow, they develop, and they all like have. Everyone has their own interpretation of what happened and, and how it played out, and what the story is. And you know, I don't know if we're supposed to know exactly what the truth is behind the story of the Blair Witch. We just know that there's something from which all of this like lore springs from. Um, but what would you say to you? Ye- In your opinion, what would you say is the core? Uh, backstory behind the Blair Witch, like, can you give me your interpretation of it so I know for sure that I'm on the same page?
0: I guess my interpretation of it is there is a the there is a witch that's been haunting or stalking these woods for quite some time now, and her presence, I think, then makes other people possessed or or, or do her bidding for her because. You have like two different things going on here, right? And it, this is where I think you are you might be a little bit confused or the viewer might get confused because the film is called The Blair Witch Project, right? And we do get like Mary Brown telling us about seeing the Blair Witch when she was fishing with her dad and was covered in fur. But then there's also this Rustin Parr story, right? And we get a, a lot of elaboration on that. And one of the younger kids comes back and and, and tells the story about the reason why Rustin Parr took the kids in the basement. He took him, he took him down in his basement two at a time, right? And he would make one stand in the corner while he killed the other one because he didn't want the eyes on him. So you really have two different sort of like villains that are being established here. And since the film is called the Blair Witch Project, and that seems to be the big focus on it. My interpretation is like Rustin Parr is doing like the bidding of the Blair Witch. Like she's, possessed him or she's you know working through him to to kill these town's children that's what i gather Yeah,
1: I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to follow. But again, I think that's intentional. All things considered, it's supposed to be like raw footage for this documentary. I really do appreciate all of the characters they interview. They all feel, again, very authentic. Very um, just uh, believable in how they're portrayed the woman holding the baby. The baby, like, starting to freak out when she starts talking about the Blair Witch. It's timed so perfectly, you know. And it, it does add to the overall kind of growing fear factor in the film. Like, is it, or is it not real? You know?
0: Yes. And you do get, you know, th- throughout the film, the course of the film, what kind of transpiring is you do get hints of both stories that were told through this montage of interviewing different town folks, things happen that really p- play into both stories that the group was told the, the Rustin power story. And then the Blair, Witch story, right? One of the old men mentions that they they need to go talk to Mary Brown. So they go to her trailer and get her to come out. And she's just this frail, old, interesting looking woman who tells them the story that her dad would go fishing uh, down by Captain's Creek, which was just close to Coffin Rock. And when one day when she was fishing as a little girl, she felt something staring at her. Something was near. And when she turned around, she noticed it was a woman. But it was a woman that was covered in hair, like horse hair, and was wearing a shawl and didn't do anything to her just kept staring at her and then finally opened her shawl to reveal that her entire body was covered in hair and then that's it that's the story again before we we cut to the the group in the car
1: i was thinking that we were gonna get more of this dame or more like i was she seemed like she was really like pivotal like they seek her out they come and they find her And I mean, it seems like they're really going to, you know, put some focus on this woman or her story, but you don't really get either. Um, I don't want to say it feels like a throwaway moment, but it doesn't seem like it really builds to anything. But I like the moment. I like her. I mean, she's my cup of tea. That girl with that fucking uh, denim ensemble and her, uh, like she claims she's like a scientist and a ballerina and like, like all all these, uh, all these different things. I like it. It, It's just, I wish it went somewhere with her, with her story or her purpose, you know?
0: It doesn't really, because it's never really, her particular story is never really addressed again. Right. It's not like we see a woman covered in hair later on in the film or whatever. It's just, but I guess it just gives us, the viewer, we've now been bombarded with so many different stories about what is in these woods. So it just lets our imagination run even more wild when things start happening to our trio. We're thinking, hey, is it the woman with the hair? Is it the the wit? We don't know. Uh, And then they do run into another duo here in a few minutes the next day down fishing at the creek that have their own story, right? But after they leave, Poor Mary Brown. They're in the car. They have a little moment where uh, Josh and Heather have a little bit of a, not I wouldn't say a spat, but a little bit of a you know budding about the fact that he used meters on the camera instead of the feet. And she's like, "We'ren't we're we using our system." He's like, um, "I've only used this camera once." And she's like, "I thought you said you've <laughs> you were familiar with this." Uh, and then they get in the hotel room. They cheers to their first day. Do an equipment check. Heather does a shot of scotch. And that's it. That's about, you know, we get these just really brief little interactions with the characters before we actually move on to, you know, the story or the actual them entering the woods. The next morning, they head to the woods and they run into two guys who are fishing.
1: I was just going to say, I think that like leading up to this point, one thing I really want to appreciate is while this does move fast and while you don't get a ton of backstory on these characters, I do feel like at this point you already have a really good feeling for. Who they are, how they operate. I don't feel like I am ha- being given paper-thin, disposable characters. Like they have very defined personalities. I feel like you have a good idea of of you know what part each character plays in the storyline, um, and they're just played extremely well. And I really appreciate that it is a small group, so you get to know them very well by the end of the film.
0: Yes. Yes. For better or worse. So they run into these two guys fishing. The, there's a taller, younger guy and then a older man. The taller, you know, dorky guy does not believe in hauntings or anything regarding the Blair Witch, but he does tell them the story about a little girl named Robin who supposedly wandered off into the woods and disappeared for several days, but came back to town a few days later. And she was babbling about an old woman who whose feet never touched the ground.
1: Ooh, that's creepy to me.
0: I know it is creepy. The old man, on the other hand, does kind of buy into the um the lore and the myths. And even he says that he's had an experience because when he was out here fishing by himself, one time he saw a, a strange, misty figure out in the woods kind of moving towards him. The other guy is like, oh, you were just drunk. And, you know, it's, again, quick quick little stories before we move on.
1: Yeah, and then we get another story about the story of Coffin Rock and the five men that were hung up on the rock and killed and gutted and it's actually very unsettling. The story is very creepy. Yeah, this one is told by Heather
0: though. She's reading it. They get to Coffin Rock. They, they okay, so the, they've parked, right? They're trekking into the woods, so this is it. This is what they're here to do. They go to Coffin Rock. Heather films the segment, reading from her book about what happened to five men at Coffin Rock, and it was the fact that two hunters found five brutally mutilated bodies of five men. Well, I guess that would make sense. Five brutally mutilated bodies, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) yes. They were were bound together, Um, each man's hand bound to the other man's foot, and they had been gutted. Ugh. And they were like posed ritualistically as well. So that leaves a lot to your imagination. Like what the fuck? What would this even look like? Right. So the two fishermen or the two hunters run to get the police or to get help. But when they come back, the bodies were gone and they were never located.
1: And she Heather's like, and that happened here at Coffin Rock. Uh, so this, I'm, I guess I'm just thrown by the fact that this area seems to have so much like supernatural, haunted lore like i mean why would anyone even a first of all why would anyone go there b if this much shit had happened around here i don't think it would just be like Wuma has it i think people would be like this is a fact all of this shit has happened around here there are bodies being found ritualistically tied to each other like those aren't things that people just like whisper amongst each other like that's something that would go down in history in the area you know you would think, and yeah, I,
0: I, there is a lot of different elements of supernatural stuff happening here. And what we, but what I think what view, viewers need to realize is, yes, the film is called the Blair Witch Project, but there is a lot of other things going on here that are hinted at. And it kind of reminds me. I'm wondering if this town or this all this supernatural stuff was based off of that. You know, have you ever heard? Of, you live in Ohio, so have you ever heard of Helltown, Ohio? Oh, I've been. Okay, so you know it's the same sort of scenario where like there's different stories and all these different supernatural elements that are supposed to have happened in this area. I'm wondering if like the filmmakers kind of took some inspiration to from that and used it for this film because yes, Blair Witch, there's a witch, but there's all kinds of other things that are going on in this film, and um, you know even the ending. While the ending definitely makes sense in the grand scheme of some of the stories that the group was told. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, yeah, it's it's open. There There's a lot going on here. They continue kind of hiking. It starts to rain. So they set up the tent for the night. And in the tent, they have some lighthearted banter about farting. Uh, and why Heather's like, how come it's not okay for me to have a cigarette in the tent? But he can fart in the tent. Again, just uh, little things, little interactions with the characters that come off as so charming and so realistic. And it's quick. I mean, we're talking, this is like a 10 second interaction because then they wake up the next morning and Joshua says that he heard some noises last night, including cackling. And Heather's like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, it was definitely cackling. And Mike does make a little comment. He's like, I would have shit myself if I would have heard cackling. But it's our first like indication. Okay. So is Josh just saying he heard something to kind of scare the people or did he really hear something?
1: I mean, I think one thing about this that is intriguing is pretty much right away, they start noticing things that are a little bit off and like, I mean, obviously at first they blow it off a little bit like this scenario, but I mean, look at what happens after this night after night. It really does prove to be cackling. I think that already this early on, they are already like in the presence of whatever this force is, which does make it very creepy.
0: Yeah, the film wastes no time. Once these characters are in the woods, I feel like the film wastes no time having unsettling things start to happen to the the group. Um, And it just gets more severe as time goes on. Yes, there's a lot of... Time spent in the film of the characters arguing with each other, which I hear all the time is like one of the biggest gripes that this this film gets is the the characters arguing constantly and it makes you really not like them. And we kind of get that right now after this tense scene, they do get into their first little spat about Heather getting them lost. Josh and Mike are immediately very concerned about whether Heather really knows where she's going or not, because in their mind, what they're following is not a trail at all. She keeps insisting, though, that she does know where they're going, that she told them that there was going to be off trail hiking and that they just need to keep continuing because she knows exactly where she's going. And she even has the map that becomes a prominent part of the film. This this map that she keeps with her in the back pocket. They get a little bit calm. John asks her at this, or Josh asks her at this point, if she believes in the Blur Witch, and she kind of looks around the woods and she's like, "I, I don't know." We get uh, another little funny moment with uh, Mike's chest hair. I remember seeing this in the theater, and this was a moment that the audience got a kick out of and laughed with Mike's chest hair, where they're like, "Oh, look, it's Bolivia! Oh, look, I see Finland or whatever." <laughs> it's sporadic. Chest hair.
1: All these little uh, vignette moments that we're getting do a really good job of establishing a kind of a camaraderie between the characters because they do, you know, for the most part they get along. But also, it does show little highlights of them starting to get on each other's nerves, like right off the bat. Um, I wouldn't say these three get along especially well. They're, you know, they're obviously working on a project together, but it's not like they're the best of buds. At least the guys to to Heather, I'll say that she. Definitely irritates them to a certain extent. But it's never played to the point where you're like, just like, oh my God, I can't stand these people together. Like all of their anxieties and their stresses and their issues with one another feel very reasonable. And when they're when you're put into a position like they're in it makes sense why they're kind of going for each other's throats because they're becoming progressively more and more stressed as you know as you'll find out as this progresses.
0: Yeah, and i also like the fact that yes, they are getting they are getting on each other's nerves. They're getting, you know, there are some pretty uh explosive arguments coming up here in the film and i think that it just plays into like the desperation that the characters have at certain points when they realize what the hell is going on. Um, and I know it could be annoying. It can be grating hearing them scream at each other, but I feel like that is part of of reality. Like put yourself in the in, in in the shoes of one of these characters in the same situation. What would you be doing? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those things. There is a funny little moment where Heather's pissing and, and Josh is filming. And he's like, is that the Blair Witch over there? As they continue, they get into the, another very big spat about being lost particularly mike is getting really agitated because he they're walking they're walking they're walking they're not coming upon what she says they're going to come upon and he is like you have gotten us lost and she's like i know exactly where we're at mike is again mike is probably the most agitated character in the entire film josh gets there but at least he tries to be rational with heather at points like he even says hey let me take a look at the map and let's let, let us try to figure out where we're at she's like i the, here, we're right here i know where we're supposed to go and mike is like you are have no fucking clue what you're doing do you and she's like well you agreed to this project he's like i agreed to a scouted out project it is the first moment where we are like okay yeah these characters are definitely getting on each other's nerves and it's the first moment that we really see like that heather is super 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 defensive and she will not back down she will not admit any wrongdoing or any inkling that she could be wrong and they could be really lost and it is to the downplay of the characters because it's it's because of her assist- insistence that they go particular directions or that they do this they do that that they i think kind of end up meeting the, the faith that they do, unfortunately.
1: Do you think that she does actually know where they're going based off that map, or do you think that she's just bullshitting? And then when that's discovered, um, you know that obviously what happens with the map, what's revealed, that she just kind of runs. With, she kind of runs with it. I, I mean, I personally feel like pretty much right away she had those fuckers lost and. And that she's just bullshitting her way through it. Yes,
0: I agree. I don't think that she really knew where they were going. I think she probably had a ballpark idea. Like any any of us could look at a map and be like, okay, we need to go this direction. But in terms of like realizing that you're in this vast forest, endless forest, and there's no trails, I really don't think she knew where she was going. Um, And I think that the fact that she keeps telling them that she does know where they're going and she 100% they're going to be there in two hours or whatever it is. And I think that's a pretty shitty thing, but I guess, you know, she does admit it later in the film for the most part, not to them, but she does have a moment. I would say of confession that you so eloquently performed on the opening of this podcast. So yeah, I would say she did not know where they were going, but she is holding on to the idea that hey I know these guys are mad but if I if I keep insisting then they they have no choice but to believe me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a moment even where Matt where Mike looks at the map and tells her tells them this is Greek to me. And she seems so she seems so precious. Yeah, I know. See? See? I'm the only one that knows how to read this map. There is a moment then where he also asks her, why do you have to film everything? Like, and she's like, because we're making a documentary, and he's like, yeah, you're making a documentary about a witch, not us getting lost. And she says, "Well, I have a camera." I mean, she's kind of being very condescending to him, but
1: she gets very obnoxious at this point, in my opinion. Like, it's really, it's her. It's you're absolutely right. She's condescending. She constantly has to play it off like she is in like the po- the place of power. Or she knows best. She's never willing to take like feedback or advice from the guys. It does make for her character to be somewhat detestable at times. Again, this is no reflection on the actress. I think she's doing a great job with it. But this character is just a pain in the ass, to be honest. Like It's no wonder to me that the guys end up responding to her the way they do at a certain
0: point. Well, and I also think it might be her acting more aggressive and assertive than maybe she typically would because she is with two guys and she feels like she has to you know that she's not gonna let them walk all over her that it is her project so she's being a little bit more condescending and aggressive than she normally would i kind of get that impression as well because she does make a comment about well it's not every day i'm out in the woods stuck with two burly guys or something like that so i, I think that she is very um, aware of the fact that she's a female in this scenario with two guys that, you know, if you think about that, if you think about a female wandering into the woods with two guys that she barely knows, she she doesn't know Mike. It is kind of a, a situation that would be, I think maybe uncomfortable or, or, or whatnot. So maybe it's a defense mechanism for her because as we find out, she really is not, let's be honest here. As we find out, she really is not the strong put together person that she's portraying so far in this film, as we come to find out she, she pretty much loses it by the end of the film, which I don't blame her, but it it just plays into the fact that I really think this is an act for her. Oh yeah. There is a moment where they have to cross this log and it's very complicated. Apparently they're arguing about how they're going to get the um, camera over the, the log. And once they get across, they find seven piles of rocks on the ground well they're not only on the ground they're tied in trees heather and you know i don't know about what, what it is about this film that can make rocks be so ominous but they are and heather even remembers mary brown saying something about piles of rocks and if you think about seven the number seven being mentioned previously in the film it does come up because Rustin and parr killed seven children Right, so I think seven is kind of a significant number, as is three coming up here in the future. But it is, you know, and I, I do like the, these little moments because they do tie the film together. Like this film has definitely a narrative thread that's running through it that is tied together. Like you might have to pay attention, but things that they discover, things that happen, are very well foreshadowed.
1: Oh yeah, it's definitely like there's 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 an array of. Uh, supernatural things hinted at early on in the film and it is kind of impressive how many of these things are touched upon or uh, kind of acknowledged or through the things that they find through their process you know the location that they stumble upon eventually um, you know saying that there had been a man living up in the woods like well that proves to be true it does all come back it's just it's it's not heavy-handed It's, you know, you suddenly you have to tie a a bit of the pieces together for yourselves to really acknowledge like, oh, this location that they end up at, that's obviously the home of the man that brought came up in this story. Or the fact that there's seven piles of rocks that was mentioned that there were seven victims. Like they don't say it for you, but it is fairly easy. Like if you listen to the lure and listen to the story of putting it all together for yourself.
0: They have a a lighthearted moment in the tent at the camp by the campfire where they talk about. Uh, oh, it's like this is like kind of like being on Gilligan's Island, and Heather makes a comment like, well, "Yeah, but except you have a good captain, you don't have a fat alcoholic one." It, her and Josh continually call the captain, call him the captain. And it's Mike makes a comment. It's, oh, you illiterate TV folk. It's the skipper, not the captain. It's funny. I mean, again, little interactions with the characters that where it makes it, you know, it makes it feel just more authentic because yes, they can argue, they can fight, they can get in little spats about being lost. But when the, when it, when it's time to settle down and just sit with each other and and relax and just have relaxation time, you can still joke around. So there is that relationship that's being developed with the characters. And I think is actually pretty, pretty spot on and pretty strong. I think it's one of the best aspects of the film, to be honest with you, they go out to film the rock piles at night and something very pivotal happens. And it's the fact that Josh actually accidentally knocks one of the piles over. Um, and Heather's like, oh, no, you didn't just do that. So she puts it together, kisses her hand and puts it on the rock. It's like, you could never be too careful. And as they go back to the tent, it's the first night that we really start to have major shit happen. Because the group is woken up. To very loud noises. And it is an array of noises. It sounds um, first like a bunch of rocks being banged together loudly, and then like tree branches cracking and breaking.
1: It's very creepy.
0: It is very creepy. Because, I mean, put yourself in the scenario: You're in the middle of the woods, and you're hearing this. Like, what are you thinking? And it's all around them. It goes on for quite a long time. They're screaming. Who's out there? Is anybody out there? Nothing's responding. Mike does not want to get out of the tent. Heather's like, why won't you get out of the tent? Because you're fucking scared. It goes on for a little bit, and it is unsettling. And I think the biggest thing about this film is that it's all about what you don't see the sound effects in this film, the sound is what is to me the most terrifying aspect of the film. We never see anything really. It's all about the sound. Um, and you know, I'm already kind of a a pussy. Like if I'd be in the middle of the woods at night, I would be freaked out. And then to hear this shit would totally just, I would don't even know what I would do because it is, it just leaves so much to your imagination wondering what is causing that noise.
1: There's like all of this, like um, uh, like echo to it as well, because it's happening in this massive like forest. So like you're hearing it like in the distance and it's like, it's so creepy because you're not completely sure what you, the audience are hearing, you know, like, like, you know, they obviously don't know exactly what it is, but you're really kind of at times struggling to identify what it is. Uh, which makes it all the more terrifying. Like, let's be honest, it really just makes it that much scarier. And this becomes a running kind of—I I say trope, but I don't say it in a bad way. This, like, every night, this does happen. It happens to a more and more severe degree. So you do start to dread the nighttime uh, alongside them. At this at this point, this film
0: becomes uh, very repetitious. It falls into a pattern, and I, I'm not saying that's a terrible thing at all because it really sets the audience. I think it actually is very effective because it puts the audience on high alert because we know something's going to happen. And what happens is it's very much, it's very much rinse repeat. After this, they hear something at night. They walk. They argue about the map. They go. They camp. Something even worse happens the next. So it gets progressively worse. So I think that was very smart because, it, again, the audience is like, okay, fuck. What's going to happen now tonight? You know, it has to top what happened the night before. So I think that was kind of smart, but it is very much now a, a pattern. We get the same thing over and over again. Them walking, camping, something happening, walking, camping, something happening. Um, the next morning, it's pouring out. Heather asks as they're walking what they think the sound was that night. And Josh very blatantly says he thinks it's somebody fucking with her head. And she is like, well, how? Because nobody knows we're out here. He's like, that doesn't fucking matter. Have you ever seen Deliverance? It could be just some fun, some rednecks that are fucking with us. Which then throws that whole other idea roger into place because i have and i was going to discuss this at the end of the film but might as well bring it up here too and and have you think about it because i have very much read some theories about this film that a it was joshua and mike that were responsible for what happens in the film they kind of concocted it to, to scare Heather or B that it was just some random like town folks that knew they were doing this. I don't know. Uh, lots of theories. And because there's not a lot of like solid, I guess, evidence presented. I think that's what makes the film even more interesting is because you can, I guess, logically have a, a theory that, Hey, Oh, this was just Josh and Mike fucking with her. Or Hey, it was just some of the town folks that saw them going up into the woods. If you don't want to buy that, there's a supernatural element. All right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess so, but in in order for that to really be, I think, a reasonable outcome, there would have to be more evidence, I guess, to contrast what happens. Like, why would they go missing after that? You know, like, did they ki they all get killed by these townsfolk? Did they get, were the townsfolk that vengeful? <laughs> Was it Mary? Was it Mary with with her uh, her ballet and. <laughs> I don't know. It could be, but I, I'm
0: assuming maybe some of our listeners have have uh, heard those theories as well. So, or maybe even have them themselves. So, I just wanted to throw that out there that I have seen them. So they keep walking, and the guys are questioning Heather about where they're going, and she says they just have to keep going east, and they're going to run into the car. They're they're two hours from the car. Josh wants to get, do another map check, and they tell her to give her give them the map so they can do it. And this is again. Mike is fucking losing it at this point because he's frustrated that they have walked all day. Heather keeps telling them we're almost at the car. We're almost to the car. And then she mentions, we have to camp. And Mike is screaming, fuck, fuck, fuck. She's like, I'm sorry, but we're close to the car, but it's going to get dark soon, so we have no chance. We have no choice. So they have to camp again. As they do, they are woken up again by those sounds all around them. They get out and record. And again, you can hear these. It's like cloud crackling and then rocks banging together. And then what kind of sounds like footsteps? And Mike is like, what time is it? Please tell me it's almost morning. Please tell me it's almost morning. And she looks at her her watch, and it's only 3 a.m. And he's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Maybe it's deer. And she's like, no, no, no. I don't think it's I don't think it's deer. But they get back into the tent, it settles down. They wake up the next morning, and outside their tent are three piles of rocks. And Mike is like, are you sure those weren't here? And she's like, no, they weren't here. How would we have thrown a tent up between three piles of rocks and not seen them or knocked them over? Again, three is a significant number now because how many of them are there? Yeah,
1: three. And it it, it definitely is like kind of tying a thread together of like, okay. I'm watching this movie. Obviously, the number seven was very specific. They saw seven piles of rocks earlier. Now there are three piles of rocks. There are three people involved. Clearly, <laughs> this, is, this is you know uh, building off of something. This is with a purpose. So that is like something that you as the viewer kind of have to figure out again for yourself.
0: At this moment, as they're getting ready to leave, Heather realizes she does not have the map asks asks Josh if he took it she's he's like no i don't have the map i gave you back the map i don't play head games with you if anybody's playing head games it's you and she's like no i i have the, the i keep the map in the same place all the time if it's not here one of you have had to take it um and they get into a huge confrontation about her losing the map Josh is like this is the most fucked up most irresponsible thing you could have done She's like, I know, but one of you had to have taken it. He's like, I don't have the fucking map. So what are they going to do? Mike's like, we just need to continue going the way we've been walking for the last day. Let's just go. As they're walking, there is a moment where Josh just claps on the ground. He's like, I'm staying here. <laughs> if you find somebody, me, tell him I'm here. Um, he's like, I don't know what the fuck we're going to do. Heather makes a comment that it's very hard to get lost in America because of the urbanization of everything.
1: So she's like, "We're gonna run into something eventually." Oh, I hate that comment so fucking much. I hate. It. It's such a pretentious comment. I'm like, "God damn it!" She's like, "We know this person." I hate everybody like Heather, who I do know. Like, it's just so obnoxious. But like, I mean, one thing about this film that I actually thought was like, this is gonna be kind of hard to really sit down and discuss this movie because there are these big, long stretches of just them wandering and slowly losing their minds. And overall, while you're viewing it, it's pretty entrancing to watch it, but to discuss it, it does get kind of difficult because honestly, it's just this kind of ongoing bitching, bitching at each other's throats, complaining, you know, and it does go on for a while, so um, it it does make it kind of hard to palette these people at times uh, just because, it, and their uh, their frustration makes sense, but they're really just like going at each other constantly.
0: And I think, again, I've mentioned, I think it's one of the biggest complaints you'll get about this film is there's long stretches of just characters arguing and people like, if I wanted to watch characters argue, I'd watch a soap opera or whatever. And I get that. I get that. Um, and, you know, it, it does fall into, like I said, a very structured pattern for the rest of the film. Yeah. And the comment that she makes about, Oh, well it's hard to get lost in America because we've we've destroyed most of our natural resources. People get lost in the woods all the fucking time.
1: All the fucking time. I mean,
0: it's not that hard to get lost. People get lost in cities. Okay. And have been found dead because they got wandered off into a park or something. I don't know. Uh, But the one smart thing Josh does say is like, Hey, you know What? If we are not back by tonight, people are going to notice, you know, and I've, you know, they will they'll start looking for us. I mean, I don't know how good that is. That's going to work out for them. (laughs) Obviously it doesn't, but at least it gives them some hope, you know, that people know where they are. They know when they're supposed to be back. When they're not back, they're going to inevitably start looking for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: They have to cross another street, uh, another creek, and the only way they can really cross it is to like walk into the water. So the guys laugh at her for having to get her feet wet, and she's all pissed off about that. I love the fact that she can be condescending to them and like say sh- shit to them, but the the like the one moment in the film where they're trying to like just joke around and laugh with her, she gets all pissy about it.
1: Oh my God. And she gets so fucking I know, frustrated. I it's like, bitch, sit down. Like, oh my God, you are to blame. And, you know, she has to keep
0: picking because she's like as they're walking she's like Josh if you have the map just please tell me please tell me I would just feel so happy knowing you'd have it he's like bitch I've told you I don't have the fucking map shut the fuck up and he flips her off and walks away
1: yeah they're fucking over her
0: I don't blame him I don't blame him As they're walking, you know, they're just kind of rambling about and, you know, laughing and stuff. And she's like, I'm so glad that you find it funny that I'm going to be miserable the rest of the day because my feet are wet.
1: And they're like, bitch, our feet are wet, too. (laughs) Shut the fuck up, Heather. Oh, my God.
0: They're like, all of our feet are wet. (laughs) And, Roger, this is where we get a big reveal. And it is Mike who is uncontrollably laughing. And he tells the group i kicked that fucking map right into the creek (laughs) and he thinks it's the most hilarious thing ever he's like i kicked that motherfucker right in the water because it was useless anyways
1: this is where heather starts to like lose her fucking shit on him and understandably so to a certain extent but i also feel like heather really saw an opportunity to like clear her name here and just ran with it Because she is putting it all on him and she's shrieking at him.
0: I thought the same thing. Like, she, like her, this, bless Heather Donahue. I wonder if she had a voice after doing this scene because she is fucking screaming at the top of her lungs. Like, her. And she she has the balls to tell him. She's like, and if we get hurt or we die out here,
1: it's your fault. It's your fault. Like, oh, my God. She was,
0: she was totally living this moment. She was like, fuck, yeah, I got an out now. Now we can blame Mike. And she's like, I knew exactly where we were. And he's like, that map was fucking useless. And she's like, maybe to you, but I knew exactly where we were at that map. Bullshit, bitch. You did not. You did not. But they both like they this turns into a whole physical ordeal. Like Josh even like fucking manhandles Mike's like, what the fuck were you thinking? And then there's this moment where Heather like charges him and bites him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it gets pretty fucking violent. And the fact that it's like a girl that at one point the guys even kind of turn around on her with the camera and everything, like it gets really physical. It's surprising. It's surprising that they kind of go there with it um but just again it shows their desperation they're oh, really losing it on each other
0: they are and it's getting and it just yeah it could be it's it might be annoying to watch but it just i feel like it creates this atmosphere of desperation imagine this i mean they have very little food very little water they're they don't know where they're at and you know what would you do how would you be reacting that's what i want to ask these people that say that this is grating and they're they're, they're screaming too much what would you do in this situation you know, you've been in the woods now for what, four days, same clothes, no bath, very little food that we've seen, you know, very little water, walking all fucking day. It's been raining. What would you do? You'd be agitated. You'd be desperate. Like you'd want to get the fuck out of there. And if you're with people, particularly people you don't know that well, I'm sorry, you're going to be extremely agitated, extremely testy. Um, and, and so I, I buy this completely, completely.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. It really, like, even though it is some of the more, I don't want to say obnoxious, but I'm going to say it, obnoxious moments in the film, um, it, it is, it's it's because they're stir-crazy. It's because, I mean, they're all uh, really starting to feel the fear and the, the paranoia settle in. And so it does make it feel very, again, believable. Um, and and uh, their performances are really very impressive, especially as they're starting to, like, let themselves go there it is really impressive just how uh, shitty they can get at certain points. Like they really kind of go for the jugular a couple of times.
0: Yeah. So they calm down. Heather gets calmed down. They calm down. They're like, we're not doing this. We have to keep calm. Let's not play this blame game. Let's just go. So they continue. And this is the moment that they run into probably what is the most associated image with the film. would you say the stick figures that are tied together? And there are a bunch of them of various sizes, hanging everywhere.
1: Yeah, this is definitely one of the most uh, noticeable and recognizable images from the film. This whole uh, reveal of these stick figures just hanging from the trees, and there is a really uh, startling volume uh, of it. And one th- one thing to acknowledge here is like the the low quality camera that they're using at the time. Um, while at times it can make for a bit of a difficult watch because it's so dated at this point, at other points it does make for a very, very unsettling image. You know, the visual of this grainy, uh, very digitalized, um, disrupted visual of these of these stick figures as the sun is starting to set, because you know how that footage would start to like you'd really have to crank it up, uh, open the eye on the camera in order for it to get the last bits of daylight and you can tell like the sun is setting in the background and they're even calling for heather they're like heather come on come on we got to get moving and she's trying to get all this footage and there's just so many of these things everywhere it is very creepy
0: it is creepy and you know you you wouldn't initially just think oh stick figures as creepy but in the context of this film and where they're at and what has been happening to these characters it's it's increasingly um unsettling and just yeah, I'd want to get the fuck out of there because who took the time to do this and why? What do these mean? Like, It just creates so many questions in our minds about what does this mean? Who did it? Are they new? Or have they been here for a long time? Who knows? I do like the comment that Mike makes. He's like, now I know it's not a redneck because no redneck is this creative. Uh, but he loses it too. he starts screaming for help. He's like, help us, help us. And everyone's like, just keep, keep calm, keep calm. Let's just go. And this is a moment where Heather is behind the guys. I don't know if you caught this or not, but she's behind them. They can't hear her. And she finally admits that they are lost.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's nice to hear her uh, own up to it. Uh, And she does even to a a far greater extent during her big monologue later. But uh, there is finally a point where she does start to break and they actually get kind of, they're kind of cruel towards her. One of the hardest things to swallow here is kind of how they treat her. Because yeah, she's annoying as all fuck, but like It does enter like bullying territory, I feel, the way that they talk to her coming up here in a little bit. Uh, Especially Josh. Yeah, it's really surprising that they went there. But, like, again, these people are losing their minds. They're trapped in the middle of a forest. They're going to die. They have no food. I get it. They're eating leaves. You know, like, it's just getting desperate. Uh, But then, I mean, hey, and we have another nightfall that settles in, and each one has been getting creepier and creepier. And this one does not disappoint.
0: This is probably the most terrifying. Um, I remember seeing this in the theater and I mean, yeah, it was a packed theater and I, you couldn't hear a pin drop. People were like on the edge of their seats. This was so terrifying. Uh, yeah, they, they camp again. They camp again. They have no choice. Mike suggests that they don't light a fire because the previous nights they have lit a fire and they've heard the noises. So he's wondering if maybe they don't light a fire, whoever it is or whatever it is, won't know they're there. Right. So they agree. And they, they go in the tent. It's pitch black and they get woken up to Noises, and I beg and implore you. This particular scene, Roger. I don't know how. I don't know if you had your volume up or not, but this this scene needs to be heard. Um, because what you hear is some of the scariest shit I've ever heard in my life.
1: It's fucking creepy. It's awful. It's children. It's like the laughter of children. Is it not?
0: There's okay. There's there's laughter. Okay, so yes. Yeah, so they hear these noises. The first one is like a growling. Did you hear yes, that? Oh, yes, I heard it. It's like, I heard it. <laughs> And then you hear children laughing, and then you hear a baby crying and screaming, and then you hear a whole bunch of children laughing, and then another growling, and then something hits their fucking tent. Oh, the
1: tent hitting. Oh my God, so creepy.
0: So they take off running into the dark, and it's pitch black. Heather sees something that we don't see, but all she's able to say is, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? And we don't see it. And they're screaming and noises all around them, and they they turn the lights off and they are in the middle of the woods, and they have no choice but just kind of stand in the middle of the woods until everything calms down. And you know, Heather's like, "Did you hear that baby crying?" And Mike's like, "No, no, there's no baby out here. There's no baby out here. It's just crazy, crazy, you know, and what I, I want to know what Heather saw uh,
1: that's definitely when I talk about moments feeling a little bit like um, a little too open ended for my liking. Like, don't hint at something and not let me see. There's so many things that we could have seen there that would have been probably very terrifying that they could have pulled off on a very small budget. But I get it. I get why they didn't. But I would. God, I want to know what it was. I want to know what she saw.
0: Interestingly enough, I did read that it was one of the crew members. He was out in the middle of the woods. There, it was like their cinema first first director or something. And he was wearing a white. Uh, like a white long underwear, white boots with a white stocking pulled over his head.
1: Oh, so it's just a so
0: it was supposed to be just, it was supposed to be like this white figure. And what I read, I don't know if this is true or not, is that like t- and they wanted actually the camera to catch a glimpse of that really quickly, like super quick, but the uh, cameraman did not pan over fast enough. So they didn't get it. So they just left it because they thought again, that maybe leaving it to the audience's imagination would be creepier, would it be better? And they didn't realize that they didn't catch it until they reviewed the footage and they they didn't I mean they didn't have the time or whatever to go back and redo it because
1: by that time it was you know the next day or whatever. That's
0: what I read. I don't know. But it would have been cool to see something. Yeah. You know Yeah.
1: I mean it's still terrifying and it is it's mostly scary because of what you do not see. But I mean, yeah, I would have loved to have seen a little bit of a hint of something, but they play it with such natural fear, like authentic fear that it still makes for a very horrifying experience. I'll say like the sounds, the audio here really is what shines.
0: Uh, well, she is selling, it. Oh, yeah. she's selling it. Like she really did see something, which she did. She had no idea he was going to be out there, but um, she's selling it. So it's like, yeah, she had to have seen something. They go, you know, the next morning as they, they head back to camp, they, they kind of, they kind of basically wait it out uh, until the morning. And then they go back to camp and they find that their belongings have been scattered, particularly Josh's. Josh's belongings have gotten the worst of it. And his stuff is thrown all over the place. And it also has some slimy substance
1: on it. I want to know what that slime is.
0: I don't know. But it's, you know, and and even Heather is like, well, why you, Josh? Why you? Why is it your stuff? And Mike is like, I want to get the fuck out of here. Let's go. Let's go. And she's like, I'm going. He's like, no, you're filming. He like attacks her to try to get her to shut the camera off. And so she bites him. He's like, don't fucking bite me. Josh being the first person, the per, the first victim. Okay, or, or the one that gets targeted first, because even Heather asks him. You know, it makes sense because who was the person that knocked over the rock pile? Um, and I think that's what we we're supposed to gather in terms of why he was the one that was targeted first. So they continue. This Josh has the camera and he he's looking at Heather and he tells her that he can see why she likes the video camera so much and he sa- and she's like, "Oh yeah, why?" and he's like, "Because it's not quite reality. It comes off as a filtered reality." And then there's this b- brief moment that I actually really like this moment, uh, even though Heather is a fucking bitch in this moment. Joshua is having a breakdown. Like he's literally off-screen in the background crying. And Mike who has been so like aggressive towards Heather for most of the film now is really being like trying to reason with her, and he's like, Let's just give him five minutes. She doesn't want to. She's like, No, we need to go. And she's like, he's like, Heather, please. He just needs five minutes. He let's can't we just give him that? In the meantime, Josh is like, Do we have any cigarettes? <laughs> but I mean, I think it's a moment of like humanity with Mike pleading, let's please let's give this guy some time. You know, he's not being aggressive towards her. He's just trying to, like, get her to understand. And she's being very, very, like, fuck this, let's
1: go. One thing I like is that not one of the characters is ever completely, like, the good guy. Like, they all have moments where they go a little too far, where they snap on somebody, where they break. I mean, there's points where Mike is the one being a complete fucking asshole. Uh, And now Josh is the one who's really starting to lose it. And, um... And you know, I I get her angle. She's trying to like push through because they're so desperate. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of weird to see that there's not really an antagonist here. It just kind of that hat gets worn by different characters depending at where they're at and the overall breakdown of the stress that they're experiencing. You know.
0: Well when they finally continue they come across what is the same log that they crossed earlier in the film and they realize that they have just been going in a giant circle. And of course they all fucking lose it. Heather loses it, Mike loses it, Josh loses it.
1: Do you think do you think this is fantastical that they've like been kind of like almost caught up in like kind of a uh like a fan, like a supernatural kind of like loop or do you think that this is just them being foolish? And, I don't know. You know. I
0: think that's a, that's one of the bigger biggest questions of the film I do think is like is the blair witch responsible for them not being able to get out of the woods? Like is it a supernatural element that they just kept walking and just walked in a giant circle or were they truly just so fucking directionally challenged that they could not realize what way they were going? I tend to believe you know, based on everything that's happened to them in the film so far, that it, there is a supernatural element of them not being able to get out.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely feel that's implied um, because I because they keep saying, like, we have only been heading south. We've only been heading south this whole time. Um, there's obviously, I think, something at play. Um, and, so, and that becomes more and more evident as the next series of events kind of transpire overnight. Um, I definitely think that they're kind of caught up in something fantastical.
0: Yeah, so they get into some more argumenting arguing about what direction to go. This is when Josh films Heather and he's like, I wanna make movies, Heather. Isn't that what we're here to do? Make movies? And she's like, Fuck you.
1: This whole scene I think is really like kind of harsh. I think that this scene is is very much like um you see what she breaks. You see there's a point where Heather I think is just like done. And he continues to keep pushing and prodding her.
0: Well, she keeps, she tells him to please stop several times. And even Mike is like, can we not do this? And Josh is like, here's your motivation. You're lost in the woods. A wish, a witch is chasing you. And Mike's like, please stop. And and Josh is like, no, she's still making movies. That's my point. And she does finally says, it's all I got. Please stop. Please stop. It's all I have at this point. And then he's like, he can't just leave it at that. He's like, You're gonna write us a happy ending, Heather. But after this, there is a, a, f- a pleasant moment when they're in the tent. She's stitching her pants up. Josh is fucked up about having to sleep in the same spot that they slept in the previous nights. But he also apologizes to her. He tells her he's sorry. She's like, I it's fine, it's fine. And then they talk about like what what food they would eat if they, you know, could get out of the woods. And They talk about mashed potatoes and Josh is like, all I want is my mom's
1: mashed potatoes and a piece of ass. I like that we have this one last moment of kind of levity before shit truly hits the fan. Because so quickly after this, we realize that things become very bleak very fast.
0: Yeah, well, the next morning they wake up and guess what? Josh is gone. All of his, his belongings are still there. He's not. And they scream and holler for him. There's no answer. They're at a loss to what to do. Uh, and you know they're like, well, we have to keep going. We can't stay here all night. Well, he'll either come back or we'll run into him eventually. And Mike's like, which one was worse, the wicked witch of the east or the wicked witch of the west? <laughs> Heather's like, the wicked witch of the west was the bad one. And Mike's like, well, okay, let's go east. So they head up, and you know they they set up camp. They, no Josh, but they they, and it's kind of interesting that you know Mike and Heather have really been the ones that have been probably in the most conflicts throughout the film. And now they're left together. You know, they don't have any choice, but to be together. So they set up camp and they talk about like, what, what's your favorite thing to do on a Sunday? And she's like, well, it used to be going hiking, but not anymore. That night they wake up to hear Josh screaming for help.
1: This is really kind of bone chilling. I'll say that like his screams in the distance
0: oh yeah, screaming, crying in agony. Like there's, there's yelps of like pain. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? They get out of the tent to try to figure out what direction his screams are coming from, but they're so distant and they They're just so sporadic. Uh, and Mike is like, I don't know if I should, is it, do you really think it's him? He's like, tell me where you are, Josh. And then the screams stop. The next morning, Heather wakes up and finds that there is a wrapper of sticks in front of the tent and it's wrapped. It's, it's, a bunch of sticks wrapped in a you know a tie that ends up being a piece of Josh's shirt. So she takes it and throws it. Mike is distraught. He's rocking back and forth. And there's a moment where she does go ne- sit next to him and console him. And then Heather proceeds to go and open up the sticks to see what was in it. And it's bloody. And what is in it is teeth a piece of tongue and it, is it a finger?
1: Yes. That's what it looks like. It's quite disgusting.
0: And she immediately freaks out and she's upset and crying, but she, I will give her this. She does not tell Mike what they found.
1: Do you think that's okay though? Or do you think, do you think that's a problem that she doesn't tell him? I don't him?
0: know. I mean, I, I feel like she knows that he's already like losing it. You know, um, should she have told him? <laughs> probably probably but i i don't blame her for not telling him
1: yeah i mean she's trying to keep some some composure but at this point like god i mean the I, very next scene he's
0: eating a dry leaf for crying he's obviously not
1: i'd be in the same fucking boat though i mean after that days of nothing they're like they're not eating anything i think the last thing they hot they had they made hot dogs Yeah, I
0: have not. Yeah, and he's. I know there's a point also where he's very excited and he's like really just You can tell he's fucked out of his mind. Like he's told. He's like, I found some cigarettes way in the bottom of my bag. And then after he's eating this leave, it cuts, hard cuts to just like the most famous film, the most famous scene in the film. The one that's attached iconically. Iconic scene. When you think of the Blair Witch Project, this is the scene you think of. And it's the close up on Heather's face as she's filming herself apologizing to Josh and Mike's mom and her mom. Uh, And she's so, so sorry. She admits it's her fault. It was her project. She insisted on everything. She insisted they keep going. She insisted that that she knew where they were at. She insisted everything. So she's making her confessional. This is literally her confessional, I think. And then she hears another noise. And you get the iconic, I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them.
1: What a great line, though.
0: I know. And then she says, I'm going to die out here. And then there's just like maybe 15 seconds of her f- just like her eyes wide open. She's not blinking, tears streaming down her face, snot coming out of her nose. as she's like hyperventilating because she's so fucking scared.
1: It's pretty palpable fear. I mean, it's very well played. I've always liked the scary movie version with Sherry O'Terry. Oh,
0: yeah. The snot keeps coming out bigger and but I don't know how anybody could look at this particular scene in this film and be like, "Oh yeah, Heather Donahue is a terrible actress. So let's give her a Razzie
1: award." No, that's nonsense. They're just simply like reacting to the fact that her character is annoying and not acknowledging the fact that she's exactly playing the character that she should be playing. You know, like what the character needs to be. But when it comes to moments like this, she's honestly fantastic. Like her acting here, her fear is is, is genuinely um, like I said, palpable. Like you could see it all over her face, as you said, the snot running down her mouth and everything. It's disgusting.
0: Yeah, and it's again, it's a scene that is iconic for a reason. I think because it just gives us a glimpse into this character that is feeling so fucking helpless. So uh, just what are you gonna do? Like, and and she is. It's literally she's making like her last. She honestly believes she's going to die and she says it. And so she is trying to film something that can give her family solace, can give her, you know, Josh and Mike's family, you know, it's, it's quite, it's quite sad and quite disturbing when you think about it. And I know other found footage films have tried to replicate this. Not parody, and I'm going to talk about scary movie because that's hilarious, but I'm talking... Other found footage have tried to do this. In fact, all of them have a moment like this, and none of them have ever met this, the visceralness of this, the the genuine palpable fear that is projected from the screen during this scene. None of them have done
1: it. I agree. I agree with that. But this, is, this is a standout moment for a reason, I would say.
0: Well, and this takes us to the final minutes of the film, which to me, Roger, are the most terrifying I've ever seen in a movie theater. I remember this experience and watching these last few minutes of the film and just the audience. It was, it was such an electric experience. Everyone, I think in the audience was feeling the exact same thing. It was just so, because they wake up again, the final night, they hear Josh screaming and pleading for help. Um, So they grab the camera and they go to, run in the direction that they hear him and they find this house which has to be the most ominous house and first of all fuck this house fuck this house i'm not going in this house if this was me they're in the middle of the fucking woods this is not good this is not good
1: there's uh, this house is just i mean this house is overgrown with with trees and branches the one door is just filled with like logs which basically says to me keep the fuck out of this house um, yet they proceed to climb in through like a window, and I'm like, this is the worst fucking idea possible. Why ever would you go into and this? And then they place? go into
0: it, and the interior isn't even any much better. It's dilapidated, um, and it's very disturbing because throughout this moment that they're in this house, you do hear Josh's voice calling for help, and at one moment, it's coming from upstairs. So they run upstairs, and they're running. So all we see is the camera, like, catching glimpses of, like, what's on the walls. And there is, like, symbols, like, demonic-looking symbols on the walls. There are child's handprints.
1: It's the handprints Uh, that get me. It is the – oh, yeah.
0: And so they run upstairs, and – Josh isn't up there and Mike is like frantic. He wants to find Josh. Then he hears Josh's voice again, but this time it's coming from downstairs. So uh, Mike just bolts down and leaves Heather there upstairs crying, screaming her fucking head off. Uh, Mike runs downstairs. And as he gets downstairs, the minute he gets in the basement, he gets hit and his camera falls to the ground. And all we hear now is Heather screaming it's so disturbing her her scream where she's mike mike ah, mike and as she's kind of going downstairs she gets to the basement and rounds the corner and sees mike standing in the corner of this basement room something hits her camera falls to the ground flickers for a moment And then we get the fade out.
1: It's obviously mirroring the uh, idea that was suggested in the story earlier that they would take the kids down two by twos. One of them would stand in the corner while the other one was killed so they didn't have to have their eyes on him while he was killing them. Uh, It's obviously alluding to that. Um, So there is like, you know, that carry through from the lure that we got earlier, the lower. I I say lower a lot and I really feel like I need a new word. (laughs) But, 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 um, but I mean, it, you really do have to kind of like seek out the points in the story that tie in and, and kind of keep things coherent. Um, because, you know, that is the ending. Like, it ends on that note, it's finished, and the camera drops. You get some, some jarbled static. You don't even really, you don't see anything. And then it cuts to black, you know, and, and so the payoff is that if you listen to the story and you followed through with everything you understand that they're now in the exact same situation in the same fucking basement as where all those seven children were killed
0: yes which then leads to the I, the question of the, then it's not the blair witch technically that killed them right so I, I feel like that the supernatural elements of the film definitely are put into question. Is it the Blair Witch? Is it the the, the spirit of this Rustin Parr dude? Is he still alive? I don't know. Um, but I, I think it's definitely one of the more unsettling final shots of a film, particularly if you have been paying attention and you realize he is standing in the corner for a reason. And that reason is very ominous. And what's going to happen to Heather is not going to be good. <laughs> and I can buy, I can see where many people, like you mentioned at the beginning, that the payoff might not be. As large as you want it to be or as explained or whatever, whatever word you want to use. But again, I feel like watch some of the found footage. There were so many. Do you remember after this film came out, those early 2000s, there were so many found footage films that came out after this? Uh, like direct-to-video ones like Apartment 108 or um, there's a bunch of them, a bunch of them. wreck. Yeah, Well, wreck wreck was great. wreck was great. I'm talking about ones that blatantly though were trying to rip this one off. Oh yeah, yeah. Um there again there was like a yeah, there was a bunch of them, but then um you know, nothing really came close to capturing what this one did until you got to paramo- paranormal activity, right? About 10 years later, a little more than 10 years later, uh, which was able to capture the same lightning in the bottle. But again, so much is owed to this film you know it's a, it's an innovative film it was it was innovative for its time i don't know what else to say about the film it's it's influential i love the film um, i do still think it's it's terrifying uh, i get why like i said i get why some people now particularly now putting this film on if you've never seen it i can see why it would not pack the same punch because a lot of the film's effectiveness definitely had to do with the build up to it the the hype around it, the, the marketing, but it remains one of the scariest films I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. And I, I get why I do. I get why I, you know, I, I, when I watch it this time around, like I try to go into it with the mindset of, you know, I know what the, the aspects of it that I find to be, I don't want to say shortcomings because it's, you know, this is just a matter of preference when it comes down to it. I like, you know, I like a bit of a tighter ending, but looking at, that as something that's played into its favor, you know, if, if I really lean into that and, and see where they're coming from with their intention to not explain everything, um, it does definitely add to the mystery of the whole thing, especially considering the kind of viral campaign that they unleashed uh, to really get this film out there and seen by the public. Um, it did a lot of favors for that aspect of the movie, and I have to respect that as an independent filmmaker. The fact that they were able to come up with a campaign that strong with that much of a hook to lure people in to see it, I mean, that alone de- demands praise um, from one filmmaker to another, you know? So I really respect this movie with all my heart. Um, it may not necessarily be my my preferred subgenre, the found footage, um, but I see all of the reasons why people favor this film. I get it. It makes a lot of sense to me, even if it isn't necessarily my cup of tea.
0: Yeah. And, and for better or worse, it definitely ushered in the found footage film. And I think I, I like found footage films when they're done, right. There's, there's, a, there's several of them that I feel feel have been very effective. Um You know, I'm, I'm just waiting for the next, you know, found footage phenomenon to come out. And, you know, they, they, they were popular for a reason because fairly, they're fairly easy I wouldn't want to say fairly easy. That's not the right word. They're not easy. They're fairly cheap to make. Um, unless you're doing something along the lines of like Cloverfield or something like that. But, um, if you're making a a found footage film, you, you, you can pretty much bare bones it because, and, and not worry about it looking, you know, inauthentic or cheap because that's, it's supposed to be if it's a found footage film. Um, you know, and, and there's been a lot of innovative stuff that comes out that came out after The Blair Witch. I know there was that one, The Collingswood Story, that was used webcams instead of... It was found footage, but it was webcam recordings. Uh, and I know like Unfriended kind of used that same thing. So you can get pretty innovative. But The Blair Witch Project, again, I know it's one of the most divisive films, horror films out there. So I'd be curious to know our listeners, what are you, what's your take on The Blair Witch Project? And when did you see it? Because I guarantee you, I would bet that most people that say they don't like this film saw it years after it came out. And I feel like the people that really are passionate about this film and love it do so because of the experience they saw in the theater. And I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but if you listeners let us know your thoughts on the Blair Witch Project.
1: Yeah. I'd love to hear that feedback because this really is a film that is divisive. You're, you're correct to say that It, it knew how to play its audience Um, And then the audiences who, you know, do enjoy this subgenre, I think it really uh, defined kind of a cult fan base. Um, And and it's just the reason for that subgenre truly taking off. And while it's not my favorite subgenre, there are several I really enjoy, like The Taking of Deborah Logan and The Last Exorcism. Those are two films I very much enjoy. So I appreciate it and its contribution. So yeah, I'm happy we discussed it. Um, I get why you know it would have made for such an amazing cinema experience as well. I wish I could have been uh, somebody who had the chance to experience it when it was in theaters.
0: But yeah, that's the Blair Witch Project, Roger. Woo hoo! We did it. We did it. We got it done. You got to watch it again. I know you weren't. I know you weren't really looking forward to it, but I'm glad you um, you know have some appreciation for the film. So. Oh yeah.
1: Oh my God. How could I not? You know. I mean, it, like, I definitely understand the appeal of this title and uh yeah like i said i appreciate its contributions absolutely
0: and with that we are headed into december so it only makes sense then that our next pick roger i feel blessed because this next pick is one of my top five horror films of all time actually it's my favorite horror film of all time and anybody that knows me knows this, and I'm super excited to kick off December, Dark Night of the Podcast, with the iconic masterpiece that is 1974's Black Fucking Christmas.
1: Oh my God, a favorite. A favorite for both of us. This is one that we definitely agree on. Uh, This is going to be one that I think we get into the nitty gritty of it all. I'm going to be real excited for this review. I'm not going to lie. I love this movie so much. I know that you adore it. So I'm very excited to see where we take this conversation.
0: Oh, I can't wait. It's out. Hey, so it's going to be next week, kicking off December with Black Christmas and kind of that'll be our theme throughout the month. I know last last December we did some great films and there's such a plethora
1: of Christmas theme horror films that we have some. Oh, get ready. Treats for all. Treats for all attending Dark Night of the Podcast this December holiday season.
0: Alrighty, folks. So tune in next week when you will hear us gloat about black christmas if you hate black christmas you might not want to listen to the episode because we are
1: just going to talk about how much of a masterpiece it is basically or at least i am (laughs) i am both of us my god i can't wait troy
0: all righty so with that good night good night happy november we hope you had a great thanksgiving too
1: happy thanksgiving guys (laughs)